Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tis the season for colds, if you like my new voice. It's also the season for tipping. This show is a lot of work. It's a part-time job for both of us. That's right, 20 hours a week or more. And beyond that work, we need to purchase new equipment in 2020. Equipment that's going to make communicating and taping across an ocean easier. As you know, if you listen all the time, Tiffany is in Rome and I'm in Seattle. That adds a whole extra layer of difficulty to making this show. Then there's hosting fees, editing software, new microphones. It all costs money. You tip your hairdresser, your barista, your server, your cab driver. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. We're working really hard to make something special in the hopes that you help pay for it. Make a one-time donation at thebittersweetlife.net. On your browser view, you will see a yellow donate button. Or become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. There are links in the show notes. You tip your bartender. You tip your massage therapist. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. We're here every week, and we count on you to keep this show going. Thanks. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined in Seattle by Adrienne Brodeur. She began her career in publishing alongside filmmaker Francis Ford Coppola. Together they co-founded Zoetrope All Story, an award-winning fiction and art magazine. She has worked as a book editor and is currently the executive director of Aspen Words, a program at the Aspen Institute, and her new book is called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Thanks for coming all the way to Seattle from what, New York, Cape Cod? Uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> Fair enough. I already told her that this might be too hard of a question to start with, but I'm going to try. <laughs> Your book is a memoir. We talk a lot on this show about the nature of memory. And right. You start at the beginning of the book saying that you worked very hard to make this story as factual as you could. Right. But then when it comes to recollections and memories, as you put it, they are subject to perspective, persuasion, and longing. Yes. My question is, is there any way to sort of set up this story by taking a look at how perspective, persuasion, and longing all shaped how you would remember it? I am going to have a hard time doing this, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> I know, um, I told you. Too hard. So I will read that paragraph in the author's note. Wild Game does not pretend to tell the whole story. Years have been compressed into sentences, friends and lovers edited out, details scrubbed. Time has scattered particulars. What follows in these pages are recollections, interpretations, and renderings of moments that shaped my life, all subject to perspective, persuasion, and longing. So perspective being the first one. Well, by that, of course, I meant, you know, it would be my perspective and other people would have different perspectives of the events that built this story. There are moments that I feel very sure of, but I can't help but ha bring an adult perspective to this, even as I'm trying to be pure in telling it 
those initial moments as a 14 year old. Right. Yeah. Because you have wisdom now that you yeah, didn't before. Absolutely. And it's sort of, I found in the editing process, that's where I was like, no, 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 that's the, that's the 50 year old woman. That's not the 14 year old woman. And, you know, just removing those. Yeah. I love that. So yeah, perspective, for instance, your brother's in here. He might see this story totally differently. Absolutely. Okay. So for persuasion, does that mean that your memory can be affected by how other people have told you to think about it? Yes, it does mean that. But it also is that I think to write a memoir well, you actually have to loosen the grip on your own narrative because we all tell ourselves the story of our lives in a certain sure. way. And one of the things involved in actually researching my own life and a lot of the different players in the book is sort of having new understandings of those moments by hearing other people's different viewpoints. Those might have been persuasive arguments to sort of release some of my heartfelt convictions about how things happened. Right. Yeah. And then longing, is that oh. what you wish had happened, what you wished for yourself? I think it's a combination of all those things, because at times I have a very romantic view of my mother, who's, a, you know, the other main character of this book. You know, sometimes I probably wanted her to seem better than she actually was because I longed for a different kind of mother. There are all sorts of moments like that, I imagine. You try to correct them to the best of your ability with the facts you have, but it's memoir is fundamentally, uh, obviously, your story, your take on these events. Yeah. Obviously, mm. your title is quite provocative. <laughs> You're my mother, her lover, and me, and also the title Wild Game. So can you tell us exactly... Sure. How it's laid out. So this book tells the story of my very complicated relationship with my mother, Malabar, and how when I was 14 years old and we were on our uh, in our house on Cape Cod after a sort of boozy weekend and dinner party with family friends, my mother came into my room when I was asleep late at night to let me know that her husband, who was my stepfather, her husband's best friend had kissed her. And this was one of those moments with a before and an after. And before I was a 14-year-old kid, I was in the land of childhood, venturing into the adult world, but not fully there by any means. And after that information was passed along and all the repercussions of it, I mean, I woke up the next morning in this sexy other world as my mother's confidant and best friend and absolutely everything changed. She embarked on this epic love affair with this man, Ben Souther. And what the title refers to is the fact that my mother was just an astonishing cook and always had been. She'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu and she had worked in the test kitchen at Time Life and had food column for much of my childhood, wrote cookbooks my whole life. So she was this extraordinary cook and Ben Souther, her lover, was an avid recreational hunter and fisherman. Since they were couple friends when they were trying to, when my mother and he were trying to come up with an excuse to sort of see each other more and more, they decided that they would do a wild game cookbook together, that they would write this. And so his job was to show up, he and his wife, with some hunk of meat. And my mother's job was, of course, to transform it into something exquisite, which she always did. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an excuse to get the two families together. Two all families the time. together and lots of alcohol, lots of delicious food. And, um, and both the spouses were in poor health. And so my role as sort of the teenage chaperone, innocent seeming person was to suggest that we all go for a walk after dinner. And my stepfather and Ben Souther's wife wouldn't come and we'd go tripping off into the night. Why do you think your mother told you? 
That's the $60,000 question, right? <laughs> um, you know, honestly, one of the parts of writing this memoir that was really interesting was the research into her life and understanding much more fully what a tragic life it was. She came from a family that also had a lot of a legacy of secrets and deception. And she'd found out as a young woman that she had a secret brother that she didn't know about. Her father had a whole other family. Then she was unhappily married to my father. She lost her first child. You know, it goes on and on. And when she did marry my stepfather, he had four strokes in five days and was incredibly incapacitated immediately before their marriage, actually. So a lot had happened. Why did she tell me? I think she had a very lonely life. I think she felt very close to me. I also think I was sort of probably the only person in the house. She probably had way too much to drink. What none of that excuses is why the next morning she didn't think, oh, good Lord, what have I done? You know, let yeah. me backpedal like mad and just say, honey, that was that didn't happen. But she didn't. So some part of it, obviously, she didn't have that filter or that concern mm -hmm. about my well-being. I think she told me because she knew that I would be supportive of her. Yeah. Had she t said anything even remotely similar to you prior? No, hmm. no. I mean, she told me personal stuff and probably more personal than every mother tells their daughter. You know, I was sort of aware of aspects of my father and her divorce that probably I didn't need to know, all that kind of thing, but nothing like this before. Well, and how did you feel knowing in those early days, at least? Yeah, well, that's that's the interesting thing, because now, of course, and I happen to have a 14-year-old daughter myself, so, of course, I'm just really stunned by it. But at the time, I actually was thrilled, right? I, You know, I loved my mother. She had been a very unhappy person for much of my childhood, and suddenly she was just full of joy and excitement and had fallen in love, and, like, you know, the whole world seemed full of potential and hope. I also think those high beams of maternal love <laughs> were set upon me, which was pretty intoxicating for me because yeah. it was not always easy to get her attention. She was sort of a busy, fabulous lady, and it was a scramble. One of the things I loved that you wrote about that I thought was a really interesting perspective was you said, and I'm not going to quote you directly, but you get to this concept of how as the child, you can never really know the mother that existed before you arrived. Absolutely. And in, in your case, and your your mother lost her first child. Yes. And and you point out that you would never know the woman who hadn't lost a baby. Never, never. And I think that's just hugely important. I mean, I knew her after, only after this incredibly traumatic event. And I think none of us, you know, for the most part, we don't think of our mothers or our parents as having these full and robust lives that existed long before they became parents. And it's, um, you know, it's just an interesting notion, because I think one of the things that writing this memoir really made clear is like the story of our lives starts way before we're born, right? Mm -hmm. It just does. What was your mother's background? Well, other than being this fabulous cook, she was born in India. That's how she came upon her very fabulous first name, Malabar. She was born in Bombay, now Mumbai, on Malabar Hill. 
her father always lives there. So they have this really complicated family dynamic of um, her mother and my grandmother, my mother living in New York City, seeing my grandfather once every three years or something. They had a very volatile marriage, which was, you know, they got married and divorced and married and divorced to each other twice. So um, I think she had a pretty unstable, pretty lonely childhood, essentially being the only child of an alcoholic mother. She was very smart and very ambitious. She wanted to go into business. And her father, who was a very successful businessman, would not have any of that. So like many of the women of her generation, you know, she had to pick an alternate career of sorts. And that was sort of in the food and writing and journalism world. But I think it was also just a very different generation where for women, a lot of the path to success or the path to your life's accomplishments were also really forged through who you married. And I think that's very different for the younger generations. Yeah. Do you think your mother thought of you as your as her best friend at that period of time? I certainly felt that we were. And then as I got older, I understood that I don't think we were as close as I thought we were, but I thought we were absolutely best friends. I do think she she thought we were very, very close because she would always refer to us as two halves of the same whole. And I think in that way, she projected a lot of strange stuff onto me that actually wasn't about me. It's interesting. I love that I, that concept of your story starting way before you. We can't take the affair out, but is there an imprint on you from all those stories that led into your existence that you think is the strongest hold on you still today? Well, I think the power and the legacy of secret keeping, which certainly didn't start with my mother. I know it was in her parents' generation, and I don't know how many generations further back that went. I have spent much of my life trying to unpack that particular (laughs) box of stuff. And I think I've moved on a lot. And my main goal is not to pass it along to my children. But there's always this understanding that my formative years were spent holding this incredible secret from pretty much everyone I knew. And I think the long-term effects of that are, of course, you know, when you hold a secret, the worst part of it is that you, it's not possible to be fully known. It's not possible to have truly intimate or close relationships. You might think you are, but the fact is you're holding something from people you love. So whether that's a friend or a teacher or a boyfriend or whoever, they don't actually know you. And you might not actually really know yourself. Um, Because for me, the lies and the truth kind of almost became blurred. Um, But even today, there's a story at the end of the book, which I think about so often. I've married into this incredibly lovely and warm and ridiculously high functioning household and family who are, you know, just sort of all very loving and straightforward. And there don't seem to be secrets and everything else. And when my father in law died, my husband's one of six, so all six siblings came home and all of the spouses and all the their 15 grandchildren. And we were with my lovely mother-in-law. And at some point, one of the adult grandchildren finds a locked stainless steel box in the basement. And everyone in this house, notable exception me, everyone was just delighted with this find. They thought this was great news. Like, what on earth could my father-in-law have locked in a box? It could only be wonderful. And I alone was just starting to sweat and panic and think, you know, good God, what is about to befall this family? This is so sad because in my family, only bad news. Like, you could only discover 
something terrible. And of course, they pop the box open with lots of effort. And it's love letters that my mother-in-law wrote to my father-in-law 60 years earlier before they got married. My husband just looked at me like, please, like, when are we going to get beyond this? But that's that was such a long answer. But no. the point is, that is always going to be the way I view a locked box. I don't know that that will ever change. That's fascinating. Yeah. You having to cover up this affair for your mother for such a long mm -hmm. period of time really kind of heightens the emotional drama in your life in general. Do you think that yeah. that you yourself behave differently, not just because of the secret, but because of the, the dramatic intrigue that's happening oh, all course. the time? I mean, I think in that way that we all play out our childhoods and our parents and so on. I mean, yes, for a long period of my life, drama was what I seemed to crave in relationships and all of that. And um it's been so blissful. I mean, you know, every marriage has its complications, no doubt. But I mean, it's the idea that you could have a really powerfully intimate, loving, romantic relationship that didn't that wasn't high drama all the time just seemed unfathomable to me. And I'm happy to report that I'm in one. And I never <laughs> thought that would be possible. It does exist. It Everybody does exist. out there who's out there looking. <laughs> That's right. News. Those of you who are on Croatian Tinder. Claire. She's one of our listeners. Um, <laughs> I, so with all that, that drama, I, I don't want to, it's so tricky with a book like this because part of what's lovely about it is not giving a bunch of it away, right, you know? Right. And so I don't want to, there's things I want to ask you about so badly that I'm not sure I should actually ask you about. But I should mention that your wonderful publicist, Taryn, has decided she's going to give away three copies of this book to oh, the listeners. Fabulous. And one internationally. So all of you overseas... That's very rare. So <laughs> jump on social media and you can find out how to win. But uh, can I ask you about Jack? Should I? Sure. Or does that ruin it? Okay. So who's Jack? So after this affair had been going on for several years, my stepfather died about five or six years into the affair. And it was a period of great grief and mourning, both for my mother and for me. And for me, also like that first ping of consciousness and awareness and guilt, a lot of guilt. And so after about a year of everything sort of being very quiet around the affair and my mother really, you know, fully grieving, um, she decided to sort of come back to life, come back to life in full form and wanted to have a joint family getaway and rented a large house in the Bahamas for a couple weeks and the Southers and their children who I hadn't met and our extended family were all going to go down and have this lovely Christmas, New Year's and so on. This had been after a period of time where I'd sort of tried to pull back from the affair a few times, tried to untangle the, the sort of Gordidian knot that I was in. And I thought I was sort of on firmer footing. I go down to Harbor Island and I meet Ben Souther's son, Jack Souther. And Shockingly, you'll never guess it. <laughs> I fell in love. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to recap, that is the son of the father that your mother's having an affair with. Yes, it's my mother's lover's son. Your mother lover's son. And when Jack finds out eventually that his father and your mother are having an affair, he kind of reacts in revulsion or yes. repulsion. He is furious at his father and my mother and does not hold me accountable at all, which I think in some ways I was craving and not hold me accountable for the affair, obviously, but hold me accountable for the fact that I hadn't told him about it, that I had kept a secret from him, too. We weren't yet married, but we were engaged. And 
I think it was one of those moments where we could have actually really deepened our relationship and sort of sorted ourselves out and moved ahead on shore footing or realized, hey, this is maybe a little too messed up even to, you know, like, let's let's really figure out why we're here and together and so on. And the fact is, we didn't do that. We just were like, yep, it's their fault. Let's keep going. Denial, man. <laughs> yeah, denial is a powerful thing. It is. Um, did you agree with his reaction? You that know, it was such a wrong thing to do? Oh. That they were in the wrong... I mean, yes, maybe that it was wrong for you to not tell him, which would have been really hard to do anyway, but... I think what he was most powerfully reacting to, actually, was that it was wrong to involve me as a child or as a 14-year-old. I don't know that his... I mean... He did not admire the decision, obviously, to have an affair, like no one's sort of going, you know, rah, rah, thumbs up. But I did not have the same response. I mean, you know, I, it's not necessarily what I would do with my life, but I don't necessarily also feel like judging or convicting the two of them for what they did. And in that part, I do agree that I would rather have not been involved. Yes. Yeah. But in a way, it was good for both of them from your perspective. You know, I can really only say from my mother's from having, you know, done that research into her life. I did a little bit the same with Ben Souther, but not to the same degree at all. But in some way, do I admire my mother for having kind of carried on through these real tragedies in her life? And the idea that as a 48-year-old woman with all this stuff behind her, she was going to just leap on love. That seems, you know, on some level understandable. Yeah. There's a repeating theme of loneliness in your book. And oftentimes when I'm reading a book, I pull them all out, but I'll stick post-it notes in with questions as I'm going along. And one of the questions that I had stuck in there, but I didn't stick it in a place. It was just sort of stuck on the inside cover. So I don't really know what made me write it down. But I thought I'd ask you the question anyway and see if it resonates in some way. I just wrote down, do you consider human existence to be lonely? Another one of your easy questions. It's such a huge question. (laughs) And I'm like, where did that come from? But I figured I'd ask it anyway. Okay, do I consider human existence lonely? It's such a dramatic question. It is a dramatic question. That's not usually how I would write it. And I would actually agree. I do think I consider it lonely in, in as much I I think our goal is to connect with people and to love people and to surmount the loneliness of the fact that every single one of our experiences, you know, we process and manage by ourselves. You die mm-hmm. alone, you go through these things alone. And and yet the thing that we we most try to do as humans is is be connected and love people. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Was that an answer? No, that's a good answer. Okay. okay. You have a friend in the book, Kira. Is that mm. how you pronounce her name? Love her. Yes. And she teaches you something about loneliness. What did you learn about it from her? Well, she, the first time she came over and met Malabar and had dinner with us, I don't know what I was expecting her reaction to be, but usually people are sort of slightly intimidated and feel all sorts of things. And she's fabulous. But Kira basically said, your mom's really lonely. And I looked at her probably as if she had three heads because, you know, my mom seemed like the least lonely person I knew. She had a husband. She had a lover. She was sort of having dinner parties all the time. And then she sort of refined it to say, you know, loneliness is from not feeling known. And I, you know, when I thought back on that, I just think it was 
very true about my mom. Yeah, kind of looping back to the secrets again a little yeah, bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it gets a little confusing because you have so many step-parents and real parents um, <laughs> in this story, but uh, another thing... And I, I have one that I didn't even include. <laughs> oh, wow, see, there you go, just for getting getting to the point. But your, your birth father, who's not married to your mother, um, right. it's your stepfather who's... She's having the affair against, I guess. But your father remarries a woman who I actually found pretty interesting yes. um, named Margot. And she introduces you to the world of books and reading. Yes. And you put in a number of great quotes from her. But at one point, she says to you that you can read your way into a whole new narrative for yourself. Yes. Which I thought was so nice. But what does she mean by that? Well, so Margot came into my life at this moment when I was really starting to sink under the weight of all of this. And I was experiencing a major, major depression, which, you know, as as you enter it, you're not even, I mean, at least I certainly wasn't realizing I was entering it. It was just this kind of dimming of emotion, this darkening of my world. And, you know, I was an educated person with two writers <laughs> for parents, but I had never been one of those people that was just like nose in a book all the time, can't ever be without one. That wasn't me. And Margot owned this beautiful independent bookstore in Del Mar, California. And from the very first time I met her, she would place memoirs and books of poetry and novels in my hand. And I think it was one of the things that really saved me that helped me claw my way out of this depression. I think a lot of that had to do with just the the quality of empathy that you have to have in being a reader, like you cannot read a book and really lose yourself in it without actually losing yourself. So you leave the sort of bubble of your own experience and you enter some character's head. And the books that she gave me, when I think back on them, these early books, I mean, they almost all featured a young female protagonist who was sort of figuring her way out of a very complicated situation. So like Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston or Dalva by Jim Harrison. And and I think in that way, she was allowing me to picture getting out of situations and, and how other people did it. Yeah, I was also wondering if it was part of that realizing that all these other people have different problems going on too. Yes. It's not like you're oh, totally. you know, an island. Or, no, exactly. Yeah. Did it start to change? I mean, if it, I guess if it pulls you out of a major depression, that's a pretty big altering. Well, but... it wasn't. <laughs> it was not books alone. So I think the three things that helped was The Secret happened to have come out around that time. So for the first time, I could actually openly and liberally share this with close friends and have them tell me their stories. But so it was the first time I felt like I became more known. Obviously, therapy. Um, therapy <laughs> was really helpful in all of this. And I was in therapy for quite a while. And, you know, reading as well. Yeah. And and it changed my life. Like I, I literally left politics and public policy, which is what I had a master's in and what I was working the field in which I was working and left California left my job left Jack and um, started life anew in a tiny apartment in New York City. <laughs> And tried to break into publishing. Yeah, and succeeded. And succeeded. <laughs> Which is uh, the great story that not everybody gets to say. Right. Um, so a lot of this show also is about trying to get out of like the mental scripts and try to figure out what you actually want for your life. Right. Because either we're told or we witness different right. things and we think, okay, this is the way it goes. How did you go about finding your own way? Well, it's so interesting because there was no one script in my family, and that might be the result of so many parents and so many influences. You know, my father was this sort of 
is this, you know, he was a former New Yorker writer, uber intellectual, sort of made his own path and never, you know, really wanted much more than like to write, to garden and to fish. You know, those were sort of the three goals, didn't have a lot of big financial aspirations or anything else, just kind of this good life. My mother had this whole other idea of sort of wanting to do. So she she just had bigger appetites. She wanted more and more things. She wanted more and more travel. She mm-hmm. just had other ambitions. And so, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing to have two such different parents with two such different sets of values, because in some ways it might allow you more easily to flow into your own ideas. So how did I rewrite the script? Um, There wasn't one. And I think I took the elements that I liked both from both of them on some level. Yeah. Writing a book is so hard. And you spent so much time thinking back on this period and trying to get inside your mother's head and trying to get in the heads of all these other people that appear in the book. Did it kind of change the way that you hear your mother's voice in your head? Or when you hear her voice in your head, is she still telling you similar messages, uh, even as an adult? That's such a good question. Because I, she is, frankly, the voice I hear most in my head. This is why I think... I wrote this book as you know, everyone has different influences in their life. And when you said to hear the voice in your head, I, of course, think about when I wake up with insomnia in the middle of the night, and I'm going through the loop. And I recognize, you know, I'm not generally talking to my husband or my children or my father, it's always a conversation with Malabar, right? So has it changed? I mean, in real time, it's changed because, of course, my mother's changed dramatically. She's almost 88 years old, and she's quite ill right now. And so we have a very different conversation, and she's actually a very, very different person. The voice that I hear in my head is much more always the voice of my mother as sort of a vibrant adult who, you know, I spent my life with. So no, it hasn't changed too much, probably. <laughs> is there anything that you've been trying to like get out of your head? I think our conversation has changed a great deal over the years. Mm-hmm. And I think I probably, in a terrific way, have more of a voice. I mean, that sounds nutty. I feel like <laughs> I'm just sounding entirely nutty. But my voice in that loopy conversation late at night is stronger than it ever was. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm hearing the things that I might, that I used to hear that might upset me, I can turn them off. I just have more power over the situation now. What was the hardest thing to write about in this book, where you work on it day after day and it just gives you a screaming headache? Okay, I can answer that in two ways. The hardest part emotionally, the part that I could actually feel weepy every time I write is whenever I write about my brother who died. So I had a brother who died before I was born and we were born on the same day. And actually imagining what my mother and father went through when he died. And and I don't even go into it in the book, but even touching upon it just is very, very hard for me. Like it just would immediately, I was always scared someone would ask me to read that part or something. And I, I really wouldn't be able to. Um, the hardest part for me to figure out as a writer was how to end the book. I wrote many, many, many different endings trying to sort of figure out because it doesn't have a clean and tidy bow. I mean, yes, I've moved on and so on. But this is, I think everyone longs for closure in a way that just is very unrealistic. Because as we just sort of said, I'll be having conversations with my mother, you know, until the day that I die. I know that long after she's gone. Mm -hmm. Um, But then my my daughter actually sort of provided this beautiful ending by coming into my office as I was writing the book, like literally as I'm writing about 
approximately the same period in my life. She was younger at the time, but she'd been given this assignment that was essentially to write about a time in her life when the grown-ups were acting like children and she had to take charge. And she just looked at me. I can still see her face. And she just looked at me. And she's like, Mom, I don't really even understand this assignment. Do you? Like, what would you have written about? And my hands are like poised over the keyboard. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't screw her up yet. Like, I haven't screwed her up yet was my big moment. And I told my husband that, of course, he's looking at me like, why is this bar so low? But I really felt it. I mean, I actually, I mean, she could hit trauma at any point in her life something could happen to someone and it, but at this point you know there wasn't something external that had happened to her I mean she really was like could it be my lizard's death and I was like mm, I don't think so <laughs> you know like we were really combing for these sort of bigger moments for her wow that's yeah. great so, so it was it, nice yeah it's like a correction of yeah the long history of your family knock wood yeah I guess since we're all about future adventure as well, what are you hoping for today now that this is all out and processed, well processed? Yeah. Um, you know, it's what's been really nice, which is not quite what I'm hoping for, but is a very unexpected reaction is how many people are responding and relating to this book because I really didn't, I'm not trying to sound coy, I really didn't envision that. You know, you're writing alone in a room, you don't have an editor, you don't have an agent, you're trying to tell your story and your truth. And it never occurred to me that it would resonate with a bigger audience, because of course, it's quirky and sort of odd um, to be your mother's wing person in her their extramarital affair. But I think all these people who've said, I feel like you wrote this book for me. And this has been my story too. And not my story as in the same thing as mine, but having, we all have mothers and it's such a powerful relationship and dynamic and that it's given people some who might have asked themselves, am I destined to become my parent? Um, given them a little bit of hope that it doesn't have to be that way. It's a lot of work, but yeah. it doesn't have to. Uh, since you were, you know, you worked in publishing for so long yeah. as an editor and, and, and working on this magazine with Francis Ford Coppola and right. and running Aspen Words. Do you run it? You run it, right? I'm the executive Exe director. Yeah. yeah, Executive director of Aspen Words. But everyone runs it. I mean, you know, I'm from afar. <laughs> I cannot take credit for running it myself. It's a nice writing conference. Why did you decide that you wanted to to sit down and actually tell this story? Was it uh, unavoidable? I think it was a bit unavoidable in that way that, you know, something which you've sort of always been thinking about and just suddenly takes hold of your imagination and demands to be written. I mean, I, you know, what I know is that after years of sort of tinkering around with it in different ways, suddenly I knew the way I wanted to handle it and I was working on it, you know, and I was doing it each day. And I was not a person who had tons of extra time. I mean, I had two young children, a lovely husband, a job, you know, two mm -hmm. parents who are older. And yet, suddenly, I'm getting up at 4.30 and 5 in the morning and committing myself to this, you know, before I even knew what I was, what it was. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. The book is called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover and Me. Thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to me while you were in Seattle. Thank you for having me. It's nice to meet you. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. And a quick reminder, don't forget to tip your podcaster. In 2020, we need to purchase new equipment to keep this show going. Software that will make communicating and recording between Italy and the United States easier. This show continues only with the support of the listeners who love it. There are links to our Patreon page in the show notes. 
or visit thebittersweetlife.net and donate through PayPal. Thank you for your support for helping keep this show going. Don't forget to tip your podcaster and happy holidays.